My name is Andy Cahill. I'm a transformational coach, and I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an incredible array of practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with your friends and colleagues, subscribing on Apple Podcasts, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Lee, also known as Dr. Chris. She's an internationally recognized, award-winning behavioral science professor, a licensed clinical social worker, and the author of a number of books on human potential. As a lead faculty for behavioral science at Northeastern University, her research and teaching includes both individual and organizational well-being and resilience, particularly for marginalized and underserved populations. She operates a clinical and consulting practice devoted to preventing and treating burnout at every level of an organization. And she's the author of Reset, Make the Most of Your Stress, which won the Next Generation Indie Book Award for Motivational Book of 2015. She also recently wrote and published Mentaligence, A New Psychology of Thinking. And she's a regular contributor for the Huffington Post and Psychology Today. And our conversation we dig deep into the wisdom and themes in her book, Mentaligence. As Dr. Chris says, she's a recovering perfectionist. She knows what it's like to hold herself to impossible standards and the emotional toll that takes. But she's also walked through that, and she knows what's on the other side. And she's grounded that personal journey in years of research and study about how the mind works, how emotions work, So if you find yourself faced with a challenge, maybe in this moment of pandemic or really any moment in your life, if you find yourself feeling exhausted, burnt out, uncertain of your purpose, uncertain of your direction, you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So let's get centered. And welcome Dr. Kristen Lee. Dr. Chris, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. Oh, it's such a privilege and a pleasure to have you on the show. We have so much ground we could cover. And as a lot of listeners will know, this is being recorded. It's April. We're deep into the COVID-19 pandemic, and that will be in this conversation in whatever way it is. But what I'm really excited about is the fact that you have been doing this work around care for others, around collective success and efficacy, around resilience, around conscious awakening, well mm-hmm. before this particular crisis came onto the scene. And, and that's the space I want us to play in today. How does that sound? It sounds wonderful. Yeah. So what I wanted to share, people will have heard your, your, your biography in the intro, but what I'd like to share is what I appreciate about you and what I hope we can help other people appreciate is that you are really walking the walk in this work. 
you're someone who I see as, yes, an expert, and you've done the research and the study and the learning to back up what you've written about in your books like Reset and Intelligence. But you also don't hide behind that screen of expertise. You really are leaning into the ways that you've dealt with anxiety and you've dealt with perfection and imposter syndrome and all of that stuff that you're wrestling with as a real full three-dimensional human being. And I just love how your commitment to human flourishing shows up in every aspect of your life, that it's not, it's not performative, it's really embodied. So I'm excited and appreciative about that and about you for that. Thank you. I'm excited to have this conversation today and, and unpack that. Yeah. So I wonder maybe we could, there's lots of directions we could go in, but I, the, the big frame that I maybe we can have for this conversation is around this idea of what you call collective efficacy. And maybe for starters, you could just say a few sentences for those who are listening in. What is collective efficacy and why does it matter in this field of human flourishing and development that you live in? Yeah, absolutely. So collective efficacy is a construct that came out of my research. And it's essentially this idea that when you do well, I do well. When you hurt, I hurt. Mm. Or that an injury to one is an injury to all. So it really helps us move from a me perspective to a we perspective. And what the what brain science shows us, what positive psychology shows us is that when we show up in a way where we're conscious and committed to being global citizens, um, to really working towards the betterment of everyone, that we all do better that way, ourselves mm-hmm. included. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the brain science behind that. I suspect that there will be a lot of listeners knowing my audience, knowing, knowing who's drawn to these kinds of conversations who are really receptive to the idea that if I orient towards we as opposed to me, there's, there's some benefit there. But, it, but there might be some people who are resistant to that, particularly in our culture, our American culture, which in many ways beautifully underlines the powerful, the power and the importance of the individual. So could you talk a bit about the science of that collective efficacy as it, as it relates to our, our physiology and our brains? And then maybe we can start to look at the tension between that individual and the collective and how that really shows up in our day-to-day lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I'm also really um, committed to as someone who's obsessed with brain science and kind of helping overturn a lot of the old theories of emotions um, or old theories of success that we really need to unlearn um, and rethink. And so what we see oftentimes, particularly in individualistic culture or any culture across the world that puts work as, you know, a a significant area of focus or an, an area of identity where we almost sort of see our worth as what we do, not who we are, that can cause us to engage in certain kinds of behaviors that we know go against brain science recommendations. So for example, 
if we're in a position where we're overworking or striving so hard for the sake of self and individual success, we might be neglecting our sleep, nutrition, hydration. We might not necessarily be connecting with people. Mm-hmm. And we also can be what is is maybe like thought to be mistake averse or just have such a focus on our own performance that that disrupts our capacity to be present and mindful. And I think, you know, mindfulness has just surged because we now have the science that shows that presence in the now, that breathing, that our focus in the moment can actually really nourish and edify our whole operating system. So when it comes to our brain, if we're mindlessly going about our lives, if we're just overriding our circuits constantly, we know that that erodes the quality of our memory, our mood, our focus, our well-being, our presence. And those things are all considered to be protective factors when it comes to our well-being and mental health. Mm. So what I hear you saying is that, uh, that the intense focus on individual achievement and success produces patterns of behavior that can actually stand in the way of achievement and success and actually wear us down and wear us out. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I think the thing that we all have to be attentive to is just how these messages are really implicit and explicit everywhere across societies. Again, like we're very much entrained to think that we have to function as robots or machines or that it's hero- heroic or a badge of you know, honor to be an overworker or an overachiever. And one of the main issues is if we're not connecting that to a deeper set of values and purpose and intentionality, that can sort of make us be on what we call in psychology the hedonic treadmill. Mm-hmm. And that's just a way of saying we kind of stay at that same happiness set point in life. So we could be sort of doing these strivings of, of hyper success or success for oneself, but it doesn't really move us along in terms of really flourishing as human beings and really being satisfied um, or being able to practice R and gratitude, which again have overwhelmingly been identified in the science as helpful mechanisms for joy cultivation and cultivation of resilience. Mm. So if if I were to make this shift, if I was someone who's really living in the me state and at some part of me notices I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm feeling less, I've achieved something and I look around and I go, is this it? I'm feeling unfulfilled. And suddenly I turn around and you're there and you're going to help me reorient towards this we state. How would you, how would you take someone into that? Like, What's the, what's the mindset shift they're making or the behavior shift or the attitude shift that might help them experience what it is you're telling us about right now? So with, with regards to intelligence, one of the things that I talk about is rethinking what we've been sold or rethinking our way to mm-hmm. the good life. Mm-hmm. And positive psychologists define the good life as one that's, again, characterized by presence and purpose and impact mm-hmm. and, and eudaimonia, a.k.a. human flourishing. And so there's actually I have a 
my chapters are called sessions, which is kind of a classic therapist slash educator kind of way of approaching it. But I'm very much into breaking things down into tangible steps. Um, So one of the first steps... For the listener's sake, this is, we're talking about Chris, Chris's book, Mentaligence. Yeah. And, and so in each of these chapters, you've got these sessions. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, they're called sessions. And so one of the, one of the pieces is starting by cutting, I call it cutting your strings and almost saying, you know, none of us are puppets um, on a string. We're not at the beckoning call of our bosses or our partners or our children or our parents or coaches or teachers or whomever may have perhaps had good intentions, but they might be trying um, on their own terms or their own way of living to dictate and define what our behavior should be. Mm. And what the research really revealed to me um, that underpinned this whole book and this whole construct was the idea that we have to take agency or responsibility for what matters most to us. Why are we here? How, how would we define maybe what Paulo Coelho would call a personal legend our sense of purpose, our sense of passion. And are there times when we get stuck instead within like a hyper-performance mode or a perfectionism mode, thinking we have to do all, be all in her- heroic martyrdom fashion. Mm. And, and that's a sacrifice to like our true ethos and our true selves. Mm. So I think the first thing is that self-reflection. And I think an amazing thing, Andy, is like, we are meta. We are metacognitive as a species. We can think about our thinking. Mm. So the first step is realizing that, you know, again, we're not puppets on strings. We're not machines. We're not robots. We're human beings. We're not human doings. Mm. And it really starts with our own discovery and unlearning process um, that comes in like heavy duty doses. There's a lot of Kool-Aid kind of being force fed to us about who we're supposed to be, what success looks like, what you're supposed to act like if you're in this social identity category. Um, all of those things, it's letters after your name, it's money in the bank, it's what car you drive, it's if your house looks Pinteresty, all those kinds of things, <laughs> yeah. right? And it's like, hmm, that, that's not what the science is showing actually makes people happy. Um, and again, instead, it actually leaves us pretty empty and pretty exhausted. Yeah. Yeah. What, what I'm tuning into and tell me if, if this reflects what you're saying is there's actually a a really, this is maybe to use your language, a meta switch, but there's this way in which we think we're doing what's best for ourselves by achieving, by making lots of money, by driving the right car, by getting all the degrees, by, by essentially building this version of ourselves that we can present to others. And so there's that, there's like, that is the quote unquote individual approach, the, the me approach. But what's so fascinating about that me approach, what I hear you saying is actually it's deeply informed by an unconscious and unmindful and unmeta connection to the we. Like we're hearing and absorbing all of these rules without without reflecting on how we actually relate to them and whether or not they align with what we truly value. Is that right? Yeah, you nailed it. I love how you frame that back to me. And I think ultimately, again, it's, it's almost, it seems like, oh yeah, you know, we all probably think in our mind's eye, oh, you know, 
I've taken the time to think this out and no one's telling me what to do. And think of all the famous songs, Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. You know, there's a lot, I think of that kind of almost like maybe what I would call folklore. Like we all think, you know, we're sort of in control, but I think again, part of this process of discovery and unlearning and rethinking is coming back to center around, you know, what are the values that I hold most dearly? Um, And then how is that showing up in my behavior? And could it be that I might be somewhat disillusioned at some point in my life around what success is or, you know, what makes me feel good about me? Or another way to think about it might be, I often ask this question is like, what would be the point of living a life that's for everybody else and doesn't have anything to do with who you really are or what your values really are? Mm. Mm. And then what's beautiful about that move is you get connected to values. And if we look at, look at the world of positive psychology, which you've, you've already talked about, one of the most powerful values is to actually live for the good, the greater good. Yeah. Right? So instead of trying to impress the greater good, look at me, look how great I am, look how accomplished I am. You can, you can shift into how can I live in alignment with who I am so that I can be of service to the greater good. And when that reframe from the me to the we happens, it sounds like we get access to a lot more personal power, a lot more agency in our lives, a lot more a, a reduced stress, reduced burnout, all of it. Is that right? Yeah. It's like it, when you're in that me category, what happens is you can struggle with imposter syndrome, the idea that you're a phony, you're a fraud, someone's going to find you out, you're not good enough. And you can shift to more of a curiosity lens. The we lens is more like, okay, I expect that life is going to be disorienting. I expect that I'm not going to always know everything. I'm going to understand that any good inquiry, so to speak, is going to turn up with more questions than answers. And I think what we see in leadership and we see in terms of our training is this notion that you know you have to show up airbrushed and shiny and knowing it all and being very authoritarian, like I have the right answers. And it's interesting because when we look at studies around this, in general, as a species, we want the comfort of thinking we have kind of a set answer. Mm. But what I found in my own process of discovery and research and, you know, education is that, again, like the more you know, the less you know. And there's a great humility that comes with learning and unlearning as a process. And again, movement from that kind of whole thing of like, I'm afraid what people are going to think, or I'm afraid if I don't know something, I'm going to look stupid, or um, I'm going to just marry an anxiety and not tell anyone because I don't want people to think I'm a mess. Like those are all part of that whole hyper performance, you know, fake it till you make it success model. The we is much again, more about community, honest community, transparency, authenticity. It's okay if you don't know, it's okay Mm. not to be okay. None of us, mm. none of us know everything, um, and you're more a part of that collective. Where when you show up honest and you show up wanting to engage thoughtfully for the greater good, then you you're, you're supported. You're not feeling um, like an imposter anymore. You're just realizing that's part of our shared humanity, and that's really kind of where you know the magic happens. I think, or sort of this whole process of healing and rebirth happens 
when we're not consumed with um, just like hoarding our own resources or being seen in a certain light that again, we could embrace the dual narratives that on one hand, we could be very accomplished and we could be articulate and we could know things and we could, you know, be a certain way. But at that same exact time, we could also be afraid and scared and uncertain and worried and struggling. And like, that's all okay. Like it's all part of what helps us learn and grow as a collective. Mm. Mm. I just, even hearing you describe those two ways of being like the sort of performative, I have to, I can't let people know that I'm hurting. I can't let people know that I made a mistake. I've got to be the leader. I've got to be the authority. Oh, it like just sounds exhausting. And then you describe this other possibility that maybe I am hurting, but I don't have to hide it. And maybe I don't know, but I don't have to hide it. Or maybe I do know, and I can share it generously and openly with, a, with an invitation for others to help me know even more and better and with more depth and nuance. And that just, like those two options, option B feels way less exhausting and way more energizing. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I, and I wouldn't like, I love how you put that. And I, I would also say that I wouldn't um, minimize that those steps that we take to get there sometimes can have pain points and they can be mm. disruptive mm. And, and difficult. And I think, you know, that really, um, I always say my students um, where I teach at Northeastern University and, and those I've served in my therapy room are my greatest, um, they're my greatest teachers. I've learned more from them. and. So this whole framework came out of a a research study where I got really curious about the ways my students were showing up. They They were becoming my teachers because they were sort of owning all the messy parts of their stories, so to speak. And they realized that those hard moments or those even traumas, losses, difficulties, things that maybe they once felt shame about or they would have wanted to kind of hide what I saw happen for them was they started to just recognize that those experiences also were what made them the people that they were, Mm. that that was contributing to their resilience, um, their capacity to learn from those experiences and to show up in new ways. Mm. Um, And that really kind of, again, became the birthplace of my research study and, and then this book. And it was featured in my TED talk as well, like in terms of you know, how we can show up in this way where it's about us. It's not about me or, or my insecurities or, or whatnot. But I think I wouldn't minimize that sometimes dislodging from our systems ways of thinking about this can come at a price because there are a lot of people that want to kind of encourage us to, you know, it can make people uncomfortable sometimes. Mm. Um, or Or I think also sometimes, we, when we're in compromised situations, when we're experiencing our own levels of stress, it can feel hard enough to keep our own lives going. Never mind, think about the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it sometimes feels like a tall order, but again, I'm happy to just kind of keep, you know, thinking together about, well, what does this look like in real time? But I, I will say that it's not necessarily an easy pop psychology three step fix. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. I wonder if a way into the complexity that you just described, the fact that we don't want to 
trivialize or minimize the pain that might be involved with letting go of or unlearning a past belief or identity or norm that you've lived with for a long time or looking at a traumatic experience, whether that's trauma with a big T or a small T. Like what I'm hearing you say is that we all, all of us as humans arrive at a particular moment in time in our human society and we are shaped by that society and and that we have the potential if we're willing to 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 go on the journey to reach a place where we can not only be shaped by society but that we can also shape it that we can be active agents of change and impact for our peers and our communities and I feel like you've walked that journey really personally. I mean, you've spoken openly about your own relationship with anxiety. And I wonder if, if we could could go there if you're comfortable. Like, tell us a bit more about what it was like for you to unlearn. What 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 knocked you onto this path? How did you start to reckon with some of the things you thought were true about yourself and then discovered were not true or were only partially true? Is that a place we could spend some time? Yeah, Andy, absolutely. I think um, for me as, you know, in in my process, like I said, I feel that I've learned so much from those I've served. And, you know, through the years, especially as I started to really immerse myself in brain science and then a lot of public advocacy and activism on mental health disparities and equity and stigma, I always, you know, and and just having worked in outpatient mental health for over two decades, what I saw so many times when people would come into my therapy room is this shared experience. So one way I might call it is like moving from thinking of mental health condition to human condition. Mm. And I saw this like amazing resilience represented in my therapy room. And then when I transitioned to higher ed 11 years ago, I saw that same thing playing out where it's it's our shared experiences. It's our story. It's all of our story. Like one, one thing that's been disrupted in the, in the world of brain science is in the way we conceptualize mental health is we used to think, oh, you know, someone's either depressed or they're not, or they're anxious. They have anxiety or even like sometimes people will label and say like, I am bipolar, I am ADHD and whatnot. And I think in general, those historic stigmatized ways of seeing it have been overturned by brain science. We now know that each person is more likely to vacillate in and out of mental health episodes throughout their lifetime. And we look at it through what we call a biopsychosocial lens, which is just a way of saying we look at the biology, the science, the genetics, the psychological factors, if there's been trauma and other um, cognitive um, aspects and also the social context in which we're all living. Again, a very hyper pressured, hyper competitive global market. Then we take in racial and class, and you know, um, like if we look at racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, ageism, xenophobia. I mean, we could go down the list and look at our social context and look at again the disparities that are created according to these things. When we, when we start to unpack that and look at that, we realize, again, that just living life puts us at a risk. And I think in my advocacy work and as I work with people, it's just the right thing to be honest about that. And so I always felt that it was right to publicly talk about that. And I think what shifted for me 
increasingly over, I'd say like the last five or six years is as I started to discover for myself as a person with these lived experiences, for myself as the first in my family to go to college, um, for myself as a person who was raised in a very religious framework, um, who, but where some of those things really, um, penalized me or, um, were harmful. And then I kind of moved into like a very intellectual world. And I felt like confused about my spiritual side. I felt like you either had to be heady or spiritual and the two Mm. couldn't be integrated. I had to do a lot of like reevaluation and purging of the Kool-Aid. And, and in the study, especially in intelligence, my, it, it kind of, I was in front of all this data that was saying, be real, be authentic, like unlearn. Um, when you own the messy parts of your story, you're more likely to do well, move from the me to the we. I realized that myself as a person in a position of leadership and influence, that I needed to continue to expand the way I'd been vocal about my own struggles. And I think it was like the moral calling kind of thing, to, you know, is the right thing to do, the moral mm. obligation. Um, but also it just, you know, you can't ask everyone to show up in authentic ways and then not reveal it. And I also feel like I'm, I'm in a place, like in my own therapy process, my own discovery process, where it's safe for me to do that. And I'm aware that for listeners out there, we all have different points in our developmental processes and we have different like resources and different variables. And so I think, you know, it was definitely as I became more vocal and more detailed about what my experiences were, I knew that I had anchors such as therapy and such as community and things that I was a part of that could help me be safe to make some of those things public. Um, because I think, you know, just telling everyone like a play-by-play of every piece of your anxiety or your therapy session sometimes can be re-traumatizing for the individual or it could be unsafe. Mm-hmm. But for me, I felt like I'm in a position of leadership and this is the thing that I feel called to do because it's almost like it's the classic elephant in the room or like the old... Um, the fairy tale where the emperor, the the clothes, like everyone says, oh, we see the clothes. Like who isn't struggling with perfectionism, imposter syndrome, anxiety, depression in today's age? You know, when we look at the data, like, again, we're all struggling in our own ways. So I think it's kind of hypocritical in a sense, if I were to be too um, like, oh, here's my research and here's what I know clinically. And then just skip over the parts about how hard it is for me sometimes to work through the the anxious moments. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's that walking the walk again that we were talking about at the, at the top of the call. And I really appreciate you honoring that some people, it, the, the sharing or the not sharing, right? We can kind of confuse confuse the behavior with the outcome. And for some people not sharing or only sharing with with a trusted friend or a trusted clinician is maybe the right moment in their journey uh and overall collectively what i hear you saying is that if we can create social systems and structures where you are invited to share even if you're not ready to share and you can always say no to the invitation, but where that sharing is welcome and that you won't be judged or 
or called a failure or, or, you know, seen to be someone who's less than because you haven't accomplished as much or whatever it might be like that. We need more social structures and systems where people have that sense that they can be with others in a collective way and bring their whole selves or bring the parts of themselves that they're ready to bring without fear of um, being shamed or being biased against or being, being shut down. Is that right? Yeah. And I think I really love how you put that. And I think that's important for us all to really take heed to and to recognize the different parts of our processes. And then the other thing um, that you're reminding me of is something called stereotype threat. Mm. And and again, speaking of unlearning and sort of purging Kool-Aid, so to speak, and letting go, uh, cutting our strings is this notion of a stereotype threat is when we internalize the negative stereotypes about our group. So that could, again, be based on race or class or orientation, et cetera. And so it's like, if you're a person, let's say, with a lived experience of anxiety or depression, and you think about those old school deficit framings, like a person with a mental health issue is crazy or like, you know, et cetera, then then you could start to think, well, just because I have these struggles, these these awful stigma, stigmatized stereotypes are true about me. And so that's part of the unlearning mm. process as well, is saying like, who got to do the defining in the first place? It was the mm. dominant group that decided, mm. you know, and like, again, when we think about a lot of what we've all internalized from just a mental health perspective, it's based on something like from the 1950s, like Freud (laughs) sitting on the couch, tell me your problems. Can we fix you? Or like an example I use in intelligence is the Rorschach testing. So how many of you guys have ever seen, um, you know, the inkblot testing and they hold it up and they're like, Hey Andy, when you look at this picture, what do you see? And then if you (laughs) see a dog and I see a cat, like, well, then you must be pathological and I must be okay. And, <laughs> and the history of that test is, it, you know, it was in the early 1900s. It was Herman Rorschach. He's like such a Brad Pitt lookalike if anyone wants to do a Google search on him. <laughs> okay. He looks just like Brad Pitt. But he, li- like, I mean, there was no Netflix. There was no Instagram. And so what they used, they made sport out of ink blots. So they used to play games with these ink blots. And he, at the time, was training to be a psychoanalyst, okay? So what he did was he decided, oh, this will be a great way to diagnose my patients. But obviously, like, as time went on and science became a thing, people were like, hello, this is pseudoscience. Like, there's no legitimacy to this test. Like, it's very subjective. You were the one that decided what you saw, and then you deem someone else's different vision or their own creative lens as wrong or deficit focus. Mm. And this is a big reason why I think um, positive psychology and strengths-based perspective has really gotten traction since when it was first originated. Because that old school psychology, again, is like just looking at a person's so-called weaknesses, their issues, their so-called problems, and not their strengths, their assets, their resources, their resilience, like all of those things as a whole human being. Um, And I think that's a a major reason why we've seen a a tremendous shift. Now we have, again, brain science that says, look at the full picture. We have, again, holistic ways we look at things. And we just, we've been able to overturn those old ways. However, when we look at our social media feeds, when we look at 
pop psychology, one, two, three stuff, or motivational speakers, you often just sort of see this very individualistic lens, like me, 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 like you can do it. You can do anything. And it's all about you. And like, just try harder and just pretend everything's okay. Fake it till you make it. Mm. And again, I hate that advice. (laughs) It's like the worst advice ever. It's not scientifically valid at all. It, It stinks, you know, and it just, it doesn't really move us to a place of collective efficacy or flourishing. It just makes us feel bad about ourselves. And even like during the pandemic, I think it's interesting how people have been talking about quote unquote motivational pressure, like people that are sort of like dismissing that we're going through this huge trauma, that it's so disruptive that we all have 8,000 variables to manage. And then it's like, well, you should Marie Kondo your life and you need to like, you know, be hyper productive because now you have all this time on your hands (laughs) and what that's, you know, not do. And it's good to be focused on growth and discovery. Like, And there can be a lot of things that can come about in a positive way, but it's just when people take it so far and they oversimplify grief or they oversimplify trauma, or they just focus like in a narrow way that isn't expansive, that we have to be really careful. And that's like a a huge theme in mental health, not only unlearning and rethinking, but being critical thinkers realize, you know, we're not scripted people and we have to think about who's saying something. Why are they saying it? What is it based off of? Is it based off evidence or is it based on just feel good sentiments so people can make money on their three-step programs? Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's so much in there I want to unpack, but I, one of the things that's coming up for me is I've heard said before that advice is simply autobiography. And that like when I hear, what I hear you saying is that it's really easy but not very useful, like Rorschach did this, to say, oh, the way I see the world is clearly the way that, that it works. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. the, I, I'm looking around. This is how the world works. And so now I'm going to tell you, hey, I know we're in the midst of the pandemic. You should be more productive right now. Well, right. who are you talking to? The only person <laughs> that you could be talking to is yourself. Because mm-hmm. in fact, your your autobiography is that for you, maybe the and and you, I'm using a general you here, not you you, Chris. But like there is some way in which for you it makes sense that you have more time. But I know lots of people right now who have less time. I'm I'm at home with a with a two year old kid, and and there's a lot of time where I can't work because we've got to keep this this young child both entertained and engaged developmentally growing sure. mm-hmm. every day every day matters so there's there's sort of what i'm hearing you say is there's an invitation into you're, you're using the word critical thinking and i'm also hurt i'm also like hearing implied perspective taking like the ability mm-hmm. to to stand where someone else is standing and look out at the world as best as you're able not not with the assumption that you have it all but as best as you're able to look out from their perspective or their vantage point and use that to bring in new information to your worldview and actually expand it and enlarge it and increase the complexity of it as opposed to reduce it, simplify it. Here are my three steps. This is what you should be doing right now. If you're not doing this, it's your fault. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I wonder how does that connect to the, you use this phrase. I love it. Use the phrase, Uh, upward spiral habits Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Ways in which we, and to me, that what we just described sounds like an upward spiral. I'm moving up from the simplicity or reductive viewpoint of my worldview and, and imposing that on others into a, into a multi-perspective worldview where I'm starting now to notice that my experience is not true for everyone. Can you talk more? Is that part of the upward spiral? Can you tell us more about like, given the complexity you just described, where do I as an individual really start to get agency around shifting into these upward spirals? Like maybe even you could talk us through a real or fictional case study of someone who's, who's starting to wake up to this complexity and instead of retreating from it, they move into this, these upward spiral habits that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just even the term upward spirals, it's, it's new. And think about, you know, for any of us, we know downward spiral. We've heard that. <laughs> oh yeah. On a downward spiral. Spiral. I mean, we we've heard that so many times, and probably few of us have heard the term upward spiral. And it actually originated out of U Michigan um, through the work of researcher Barbara Fredrickson, mm. who talks about something called positive emotion repertoires, mm. and that's just a fancy way of saying that when we can create positive states of mind. So that could happen through mindfulness or just, you know, really being present with a loved one or doing an activity that really cultivates a lot of joy for us. When we can create those moments within our brain and our whole our whole fabric of our beings, then we are able to then build, that's like a building block for us. And then we can continue to build off of that. And that's where that upward momentum is generated in our lives. And so that just kind of really like enthralled me and captured the spirit of, like you said, perspective taking, strength-based perspective, rejecting this deficit-oriented way of, of seeing ourselves in the, within the world. And so the way I did each session was using, of course, academics, we love our acronyms. So <laughs> unlearn and pivot is the, is the acronym, you know, to spiral up. We have to unlearn, again, um, forms of indoctrination indoctrination that we're taught and then pivot towards new expansive ways of thinking. So I'll give an example. Um, let's take someone that is a leader in the workforce and um, just like so much responsibility and the learning could be that like you're supposed to, uh, the original learning is like you're supposed to suck it up, never let anyone see you sweat. You're supposed to be on 24 seven. And therefore I'm never going to give myself permission to take any breaks, um, to, you know, for creativity, for replenishment, for self-care. And the indoctrination is like, just, just go like 24 mm. seven. Mm. And obviously that, you know, part of my research is looking at burnout and the burnout rates across the world are excruciating. You know, they're saying by 2030, lifestyle-related illness is going to surpass communicable disease in terms of poor outcomes. And so the that piece of pivoting is like, I can still work really hard and be a leader who brings about influence, but I don't necessarily have to just think that, again, I'm a robot or a machine. It's okay to take breaks because that's actually going to be restorative for my mind, body, and soul. And so, and by doing that, by a person then making that shift, then that allows them to build that positive emotion repertoire that allows them 
you know, the big thing with, with spirals is that our whole environment in which we're operating <laughs> is so chaotic. Yeah. Like life is not linear. It's not three easy steps. There's so much that we're trying to contend with, but the piece of upward, you know, um, momentum is, is not feeling like we, we just have to be whipped around by that chaos that we have no control whatsoever, or that we just have to fall for all these things that we're, you know, sold about what makes us a good leader or makes us a good person or a good um, woman or man, or like all these things that we're sold. Again, a lot of the upward momentum is unlearning it and then saying, no, I'm going to see it in a much broader light, a more compassionate light, a more generous light, one that honors me as a whole person and that doesn't leave me at risk for, again, not being myself or putting myself up against these standards that are really inhumane, um, that are just like erroneous and they're coming out of someone else's. Like I like how you talked about the biographical or people who are anecdotal. Oh, did you hear You know this cautionary tale? And this is what you should do. No, we all have to really, you know, think about, well, is it sustainable to be a leader who works seven days a week, 80 hour weeks, or is that going to lead me to a compromised situation? Mm-hmm. So it's about asking questions and then picking, you know, small behavior changes that we can make that align better with our values and what's sustainable and what's, you know, just more humane. I love that you're using the word humane here. Um, it strikes me that like you've used, you've talked about the words or the model of machine and that we're machines. And we look around the world that that analogy is in lots of places, right? Like we can see in organizations, you know, using that kind of language to describe their performance. We've got key performance indicators and we've got to leverage, you know, the idea of a lever, we've got to leverage this resource, we've got to, you know, utilize this piece. And it's all very, the language is very mechanistic. We have this construct that we live in that is about using resources until they're spent, and then either replenishing those resources or moving on to different resources. But the construct I hear you talking about, this humane construct is recognizing that the most fundamental resource we all have is our our own inner energy and our own ability to stay centered and grounded and connected to other people. And that that's something that can't be treated like gasoline to be burnt. And I wonder, like, I know you've also spent time in thinking about leadership specifically. So you've got this wonderful body of work around resilience and upward spirals and overcoming blind spots. And if we were to really move that lens very specifically into a leader, there's, there's a lot of, of research, which I'm sure you're aware of, around the power of not being the heroic leader who does all the work. And the fact that that actually trying to be that, not only are you working 80, 90, 100 hours a week, you're burning out, you don't have space to breathe and think, not only does that model have a real negative impact on the person who's in the position of authority, but that model also has a hugely disempowering impact on all the people who are quote unquote being led by that person. And I wonder if we could just, um, like, if that's something you have some some perspective on, how, do, how does 
us shifting away from these constructs of, of being and doing everything to recognizing that there is a divert, if we have a diversity of, of viewpoints and a diversity of skill sets and a diversity of backgrounds that our teams and our organizations are, are going to be more robust and that actually the leader isn't this person who has to do it all. The leader is actually kind of like catalyzing everyone else to do it all in a sense. Is that something we can unpack a bit here? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm so fortunate. I have the chance to work with leaders across the world. Um, I spend a lot of time in both corporate and nonprofit and educational sectors, really looking um, at all this from a leadership lens specifically, you know, and to, again, to help leaders recognize um, leadership is not about power over. Mm -hmm. It's about positive impact. Influence and again, really to harness this whole construct of collective efficacy. It's that whole um, aspect of shared voice, of participation, of leveraging the strengths of teams. Um, and and as you say, you know, looking at the diverse perspectives and how that can come together in a way that can really um, help an organization to flourish. Um, so many times within organizational cultures you know, trust can be lessened, um, just in the sheer intensity of the work. Sometimes it's, if it, I think people skip over the steps of building relationships with each other. And when we think again about resilience and leadership, um, relationship building is such a critical fundamental aspect that sometimes I think, again, doesn't give, isn't given enough attention. Um, but when people can feel safe, and they can feel seen and that their voice is important, then it matters that their contributions matter. Um, when we look at the research around that, we really just see um, people being more present. You know, we do run this terrible risk writ large in terms of what they're calling now presenteeism, which is you're there, but you've checked out, mm. or absenteeism where people aren't, um, aren't, you know, showing up for work. And then I think, you know, we also see, again, like lots of turnover rates and people being very dissatisfied. And again, I think it goes back to that whole larger notion in society that people aren't treated as people. And I think it's very simple that if we treat each other uh, and we value each other's perspectives and we look to harness the talent and harness the resources and strengths um, within each other, that we see that just really creating such an upward momentum um, for everybody involved, you know, creating those cultures of safety. And one way I talk about it um, is kind of creating a a culture of help seeking and help giving. Again, Mm -hmm. just that basic notion of someone doesn't have to show up um, in a way like where they just can never be themselves or they can never express dissent or concern. Um, But if we have open dialogue, we know, again, from a research perspective that if there's that mom effect in an organization where people like are afraid to say things to senior leadership, that they're going to be penalized or they're going to be thought less of, or even if, you know, you just ask questions, not all organizational cultures welcome that or create the space for that. But we know the ones that do, um, and that friction can occur and, and it can be worked through, um, that we can really see a lot of, a, a lot of positive momentum happen there. Um, when people feel psychologically safe, they're apt to do their most creative work and their best work. When people feel dismissed, discriminated against, oppressed, um, like their voice doesn't matter, that's when we see disengagement happen. 
I had a, um, I worked for a number of years alongside a clinician, a woman named Adina Davidson, who is just this beautiful, beautiful social worker and therapist who's just out on the front lines working with teachers and students. And she always used to say, we create each other. Mm. And I hear that in what you're describing. And, and I think there's even some research that backs that up by um, Douglas McGregor, I think his name was, out of MIT back in the 60s. And basically, like, his, his research was like, if you treat people as a leader like they can't be trusted, you, they will behave in ways that prove to you that they can't be trusted. If, on the other hand, if you treat people as responsible, caring, committed human beings who are who are connected to the greater good and the collective, they will behave in ways that prove to you that they are responsible, committed, connected. And mm-hmm. so, I really hear this remarkable. It seems to me that, and I've and I've encountered a few leaders like this who say, "Well, you know." I'm just going to do it myself because no one else can do it as well as I can do it. Or you can't trust people to show up on time. So we've got to implement this punitive policy. And what's remarkable is that they're right because they've just created a scenario where the person on the receiving end of that behavior or that policy, either consciously or unconsciously feels really disempowered and feels impressed and feels discriminated against. And, and, like putting myself in their shoes, like why would I ever want to step forward and and work for the greater good in a context like that? Mm. So there's there's this invitation I hear you making to leaders everywhere that like taking care of yourself is actually an act of leadership because you're letting everyone else know that it's okay for them to take care of themselves. And in so doing, you're creating a space where people are actually going to be more engaged, more enlivened. They're not going to be absent or pretending to be present, they're actually going to be present because they can see there's something real and authentic here, not this kind of machine version of work that we've all been been sold this bill of sale. That's right. And I think when a leader does that, they're really representing this notion of, of integration of, again, like just the full humanity and the full experience. And one one um, exercise I provide in Mentelligence, and it's something I, I love to use in my classroom and with organizations, we call it the shadow CV exercise. Mm-hmm. So it could be also shadow resume. So it's the idea that if you look at like someone's resume, you could look at that and say like, oh, wow, like look at look at everything they've accomplished. But in the margins of that and the shadows of that are a lot of experiences they're like almost like if you looked at like, okay, you held this job. Well, you had to go through eight interviews before you got the job or you secured $8 million in grant writing, you know, in grant funding. Well, I had to put in 50 applications before I got that. So mm-hmm. it's that whole capacity to just talk about like how the struggle served as a catalyst for growth. And a way I put it is learning is everything and everything is learning, mm. right? And when leaders can just show that side of their humanity and and to your point, the practices that they use for sustainability and burnout prevention and the, the way they've been able to harness even challenges um, as catalysts for their so-called success, I think that means a lot. And that creates, again, an environment where trust is deep, deeply facilitated. You know, it's it's more possible that way. And it's also one that, again, just going back to what you're saying, like when people are punitive or micromanagerial, it's like, 
that just doesn't bring out the best in people. That's very Rorschachy. It's very like, you know, I'm just going to like, we call it confirmation bias in psychology. Like mm. we only pay attention to evidence that supports our original theories. So if you think the people on your team are all just going to not do a good job and you can't delegate, you know, then like you're only going to pay attention to evidence that supports them. And you're only going to just create almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you don't take those risks and provide those opportunities and the support and see the strengths that you can harness and, and cheer that on, you're probably going to get exactly what you first visualized. Mm. Mm. Yes. We all can find ourselves in traps of our own making if we don't take the time to step out of our own perspective. Indeed. Yeah. So I love this uh, exercise, by the way, the shadow CV. And I wonder um, whether you have it formally or informally, but like if I'm, if I'm a listener right now, could you just maybe take us, and we're coming down the home stretch here, but I, maybe you could just take us through a version of that that I might do, or just talk about like, cause it's pretty, it's, it's very intuitively understandable. It's like, oh, I can see the, the thing I want to tell people about, but hidden behind the thing I want to tell people about is a set of experiences, feelings, memories that maybe I don't want to share. Like to get this job, I had to get rejected from 49 before I got the 50 <laughs> kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And I wonder like what, could you talk a bit about why that's powerful and how someone who's listening might do some of that shadow work of looking at the parts of themselves that maybe they don't want to bring into the light and, and making sense of them and integrating them? Yeah, well, I think one one key aspect that underpins this is that so many people experience imposter syndrome in today's context because it feels like nothing's ever enough. And again, there's this pressure to perform. What we also see is that perfectionism is on the rise by 33% over the last 10 years mm -hmm. with social comparison being the driving force. So if we look at this in a leadership and organizational context or even on an individual level, we come up with these ideas that someone else's carefully curated version of themselves that they're presenting is the truth or it's reality. Mm. When the truth is behind the scenes or in the shadows of what's being presented are pretty complicated narratives. And I think that's one thing that was a huge discovery in my research. And I see it across entrepreneurial spaces, business spaces, coaching spaces, where people are just getting more and more bold to tell the backstory of their experiences that the reason I'm here today isn't just because I went to Ivy League and I had a 4.0 and like everything went perfect and it was so linear. It's that it was chaotic and that I weathered it or that I, you know, I had to kind of scrap my way through or there was these moments of like horrific disaster that allowed me to learn and grow and then become more resilient. And and maneuver those upward spirals. So the shadow exercise is one where, you know, you could just take, this could happen in a coaching relationship or a mentor relationship, or it could be a family member, but pick, uh, pick someone that you sort of think, wow, like they're a powerhouse. They're a leader that I look up to. They're a role model and ask them to look at their resume, you know, and you see like all the accolades and their shiny bio and all that. And then you get down to the nitty gritty and you ask like what, you know, tell me more about the backstory. Tell me more about like what your experiences were and were there so-called setbacks or so-called failures that also served as catalysts for growth and let the person kind of 
expand beyond what you see, like, you know, in the forefront of the accomplishments, what's that actual shadow backstory? And that can just be like a super enlightening process for both parties, really, to really just, again, like have those meta moments where you're like, wow, it wasn't just, you know, this, this thing that looked really good to the outside world. There was actually a whole bunch of suffering or trauma or discord or unhitching and unlearning that went through all of it that allowed to get to that point of strength and resilience and fortitude and perseverance and creativity, really agility, really. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can happen like in any kind of relationship where you just examine deeper, you know, beyond the, the shiny bio or CV or resume and you ask for more data points so that you can see that we can all see that learning often happens in the darkest moments, that strength happens through the struggle. Um, and I'm not romanticizing it, but I think, you know, that there's a lot we can discover within the shadows and getting ourselves to be more honest about, you know, not romanticizing resilience or thinking it just happened really quickly or that someone that's quote unquote successful has never had their fair share of pain. Oh, that's so beautiful, Chris. Yeah. And, and what strikes me there is that the both people involved in that conversation, both the person who is connecting with someone they're inspired by and the person who is being held up on a pedestal by that first person, both of them can enter into a space of complexity and humanity that would probably be enlightening and inspiring for both of them, you know, to sort of say like, or you're interviewing me and asking me to share things that I've never shared before or that I wouldn't normally share. And it's really powerful and enlarging for me to connect to the complex story as opposed to the, to the shiny bio story. And then for the person asking those questions to really get affirmation that, that this person who they admire is a full three-dimensional human being, not just some kind of superhero performer up on a pedestal that they can never reach. Indeed. Yeah. So my, the, the driving question for this podcast, and, and people always laugh when I ask this because it's such a big question, but I'm going to, I love it and it's challenging and I'm, and I'm going to invite you to hold this conversation that we just had and, and also maybe all the things we could have talked about, but didn't, and, and really see if there's something you want to share around what your fiercest hope for humanity is. Like if you could, if you could go out into the minds and hearts of people and just share a possibility with them, a hope with them around this moment and our history around, uh, around the larger context of who we are as a global society or as a collection of national societies all interacting together, like at whatever layer makes sense for you, Chris, what is your fiercest hope for humanity right now? I, I love your question and framing. It's just, it's phenomenal. And and I think that it, it boils down to this whole construct of collective efficacy that people could see themselves in more expansive ways and that we could see each other in those same ways. And instead of looking at each other with fingers pointed and eyebrows furrowed and arms kind of folded, we open our hearts and minds in more expansive ways about the human condition, that we see our strength, we see our inherent value, our worth, our beauty, our potential our capacity for growth rather than the scrutiny or just, again, kind of being under the rule of society's ideas about success that we could rethink them 
and we can realize there's no success. There's no, you know, mental health or well-being. There's no success without mental health or well-being. There's no success if it's just for the sake of self. And there's no success if it's fake and it, or if it's just a limited view of it that is very um, truncated, very airbrushed um, mm. or forced on us. So mm. I think just that expansive way of seeing ourselves and one another and showing up for an, each other in a way where we're holding that space with just full love and, and humanity for one another, solidarity. Um, that, that's my greatest wish. Mm. So beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Chris. This has been a wonderful conversation. I feel, I feel expansive and enlivened by the possibilities that you're offering people. And I'm particularly grateful that at this moment in time, as we're weathering a pandemic, that you are someone who has been walking this walk for decades and that these skills are true pandemic or no, that there is space for us to see each other as complex, fully formed human beings worthy of love and care as opposed to opponents or, or enemies or people to be managed. And I just love that you're doing this work. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And I'm just so pleased um, you're also on this amazing journey in the way you're showing up. So take great care and keep shining bright in all you're doing, Andy. Thank you, Chris. Talk yeah. To you. Okay, right. take Thanks care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find The Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love on the review boards. And if you're interested in learning more about my transformational coaching work, or if you'd like to get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings, sign up for my newsletter at mindfulcreative.coach. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now more than ever.